Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, David Bainey, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Secorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We'll be reviewing various works from the famed Appendix N, as termed by the revered Gary Gygax, and helping you prepare to serve them at your DCC RPG table. In honor of the holiday upon us this week, here's our Halloween special. With me tonight is David Beatty. Greetings, Podites. And we have Bob Brinkman. <laughs> Okay, that was appropriate at least. And also with us tonight is the author of the new DCC RPG Halloween module, Stephen Newton. Hey guys, sadly I don't have a cackle like Bob's, but uh, hello anyway. It's all good. We get this started out. Our pre-Appendix N selections for the show are The Cask of Amontillado and The Mask of the Red Death by the classic Edgar Allan Poe. Gotta love short stories, and we got a twofer for you tonight. It's a bonus. So, let's go through Mask of the Red Death first. Bob, insert synopsis here. Certainly. The Mask of the Red Death, which is one of my favorite Poe stories, takes place during an outbreak of a fictional plague, the Red Death, that leaves people bleeding from their skin. And Prince Prospero gathers a thousand nobles, and they take refuge in his walled abbey to protect themselves from the plague. And during this time, they throw galas and parties after welding themselves in to keep the common people out. And during the final party at midnight, a mysterious figure appears, and it is the embodiment of the Red Death. It gets just so perfect as he moves through the crowd, and eventually the story ends with Prospero and all of the revelers lying dead. And the final line is, And darkness and decay and the Red Death held illimitable dominion over all. It's just classic Poe. I like this one. It's nice and dark, and I think pairing it with the Vincent Price movie, just watching that right after reading this, really cemented it. So, a couple of reasons that we chose this particular piece. Not only was Poe a very influential source for Lovecraft and so many others that are listed on the actual Appendix N, you know, it's Halloween, you need Poe, and this one may have come by recommendation from the Dark Master himself. Ooh, yeah. Mr. Goodman's a Poe fan. So, uh, ask and you shall receive. <laughs> so what were some of the biggest parts of the visuals that stuck out for us? Well, the thing I learned is you can't escape from the boogeyman. <laughs> gonna get you, but I love the imagery that Poe built with the various chambers and the stained glass and the light cascading through the windows, but also the clock. The clock, for some reason, just really struck a chord with me, no pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Finishing it off with, as Bob said, the last gala with the embodiment of the Red Death 
sauntering through the crowds. And the way he described it was almost like the mask that he was wearing was kind of ghoulish, but it really kind of built an eerie scene. And I think it really lends itself to some of the adventures that the guys out there might want to run, giving them a good feel for building that suspense and adding some coolness to their descriptions. And those descriptions themselves, I noticed at one point Poe didn't even want to describe the guest. And the very next paragraph is a huge, long description, and it's very flowery, and it's very Lovecraftian in that aspect. Well, Bob's our resident Lovecraftian expert, so what do you think, Bob? Well, Lovecraft was certainly very inspired by Poe, and if you look at the Lovecraftian communities, there's a lot of crossover in fans of both Poe and Lovecraft. The Lovecraft Film Festival has run Poe adaptations. They kind of go hand in hand, and something this dark with the imagery that is both colorful and macabre really hangs nicely in a chill October night. Ooh, nicely put. Yeah. Nicely done, yeah. Well, Stephen, you mentioned earlier that you had been studying up a little bit for this. What do you have for me? Yeah, there's a couple of things interesting about this. One was I haven't read Poe since probably high school. Uh, I'm with you. And so rereading it, especially after I've been on a bad string of books lately, the evocative writing, this is why he was the master. It was so refreshing to cleanse my literary palate, so to speak. One thing that struck me is one of the books I have been reading has been John Peterson's Playing at the World. And what's interesting about that book for the listeners who haven't read it is he really gets into the history of role-playing and all the influences that went in there. I mean, almost to the point where he says, and in the beginning, before there was paper, there was pulp. Um, Maybe not quite that (laughs) far back, but he does spend a lot of time talking about the influences of Lovecraft and how Poe and Lord Dunstan apparently influenced Lovecraft as part of the weird tale. So that was kind of interesting, and I think it's worth checking out that chapter in there. But back to it, and I don't know how you'd like me to go through it. There were several things that struck me about this. So I read the story, read it again, and then I thought, what parts of these would make good gaming elements? And I think some of the things, one is the seven-colored chamber. That seemed very gigaxic to me as I read that it struck me as like the spheres in Tomb of Horrors or some of the pools in in, in Search of the Unknown although I know that's not Gygax but <laughs> and they spent a lot of the time in the black room but that seemed like if you wanted to build a citadel with seven blue room and a violet room and an orange room that each one of those could have had some sort of special effect or, or trap or characteristics that would have translated really well to game terms. When I was reading I was like I want to check for traps. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Reaching for my D20 but it wasn't anywhere around. But that seems very like, okay, now you're in the blue room and, and there's so many things going to be done with like elements or gems or, or whatever. But yeah, that, and that, and that was And the stained right. glass. The stained glass was colored as well. So that last room is the black, but it's got the scarlet red pane. Well, that's right. And I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something about when the time changed, which is something I haven't seen done a lot in adventures, that the room changed colors, I think at sunset or sunrise or one of them. But that seemed like, it's like, oh, that would be a good, players could get comfortable in a room until high noon. And then all of a sudden other bad things start happening. Ooh, I like that idea. You would think, well, as it gets dark, the room changes to this. But high noon, I like that dichotomy. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, and with the colors and the lighting, if you wanted to play with it in game terms, it easily could have effects of emotion where it plays on you. You know, the blue room for sadness, red for rage. You could twist characters and kind of push players in new directions just through how they interact with each other in each of these rooms. Well, exactly right. And if you add the effects, and Dave talked a little bit about this earlier with the clock, when it hits the hour, it almost has the effect of a slow spell or a charm spell or something that's going on because it's affecting everybody and they become befuddled and whatnot. But you could actually have different effects 
in depending on which room you're in and the color so you know the red room could hasten you or the blue room could do something else so yeah you could play with that quite a bit it's not just a one effect per the clock or per the room oh, yeah well and if you really want to play with color especially since jen mentioned the vincent price film <laughs> based on the story you already have the red death who easily could be statted as a patron or as a deity and in the film at the end, he meets up with almost a pantheon, a court of many-hued deaths. Black death arrives. There's a figure in yellow who, who might be yellow fever. It could be the king in yellow. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's another figure in red that could be scarlet fever. So you could really build on this to drop something into a game or into a campaign setting that's very dark and evocative of those medieval personifications of disease and death and the ill spirits that caused them. Mm. Well, and you guys are going to laugh at me. Bob, shut up. I have this fascination with light fixtures. <laughs> and <laughs> stop it. That is something you do not hear every day. So in this film, with color being such an evocative part of it, it was really the primary focus. And each room had candelabras with the different colors of candles. And so you could quite easily do something with all of those. In the main ballroom, they were all kind of mixed tapers between blues and greens. The blue room, you had the blue. The green room, just the green candles. In the black room with the scarlet window, just the black candles. I could almost see running something so that the wax on those burns red just to bring the whole thing together. Right. Right. Well, and using colored candles, we were already discussing the possibility of the colored light coming through the windows evoking a magical effect, but you could also mislead players by mm -hmm. essentially using drugged tapers of different colors, and so there's not a magical effect. It's a poison effect. It's a hallucinogenic effect that comes from the candles themselves. Yeah, I'm all about using those things. <laughs> awesome. Right. So what about prop and audio suggestions? Ooh. Jen, you have some suggestions? Well, yeah, candles. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you could really go with the throwing focus on that. Just have a room full of them scattered along the room if, if you're playing in a private environment. And as they enter another room, you light a specific candle and see if they start catching on. Oh, yeah, that would be cool. I was thinking more along the lines of having a central light set somewhere and actually using colored gels. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That's too easy. <laughs> Says the woman that wants to start a fire in the game room. Most guys don't have a lot of candles, Jen. Yeah, well, I, I don't either. I would have to get them special or whatnot, but... Why does this dungeon but... smell like pine? <laughs> But the, the colored gels have a really nice touch, too, because then you could just bathe the entire table in it. Exactly, including your players. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and of course you would need the big gonging clock sound effect on certain key Oh, events. yes, and in the meantime, you can have a little bit of harpsichord music in the background, something to evoke a, a Renaissance entertainment in a Gothic setting. Right. Yeah, I was kind of thinking along the same lines with you as far as the music goes. And guys, just remember, you can dig up some tracks really easy and Bluetooth those into the table and you're already setting a good theme with everything else you've got going. I was just reading Spotify has a number of lists of classical music playlists. There's actually entire albums devoted to music based on the works of Poe. Nice. So, oh, yes, wow. so you can look for some of those and get some really dark music. That would really, I think, fit nice. and, and cast a nice atmosphere. So you know what you'll be hearing from my office for the next couple of weeks. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, I'm good with that. 
I, I presume we'll talk about the Red Death himself, but what about the, the setting and the characters of how you could start a funnel or something like that? Either as you were one of the guests of the Prince or getting in there. What was your thoughts on that? My first thought, having watched the Vincent Price movie, because you know, Halloween, Vincent Price, King of Halloween, and having read the story, Transylvanian Adventures immediately springs to mind because yes. it's based on the Hammer films. It's based on the old Roger Corman gothic films. There's that feeling there, and as guests of the prince or people who have arrived to find those dead and to race the clock to try and find a way back out before becoming infected. You could Ooh. go sort of the gothic modern zombie vibe. You're trying not to be infected by all of these plague-ridden people and plague-ridden corpses. The spirit of death moves through the entire dungeon seeking you out. Ooh, that's dark. Yeah, that's good. Go ahead and write that up, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I was also thinking as I read about the Red Death cleaning through it and the people that were fleeing from him as a creature, that seems like the sort of thing you would only want to deal with with the ranged attacks. I, I have to presume <laughs> that if you were foolish enough to attack him that like there was some sort of plague-like elements that would immediately jump onto you. Yeah, you don't bear hug the Red Death. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I have a bumper sticker that says that. <laughs> oh, jeez. I was just going to say, you mentioned the Transylvania Adventures. There's actually an older setting. You guys that are old school D&D may remember the Ravenloft setting, the Mask of the Red Death. Do you guys remember that? I didn't know that Ravenloft did a uh, Red Death adventure. So, yeah, the Mask of the Red Death was a campaign setting that Dungeons & Dragons put out, I want to say, around 1994 or 95. And it was really cool. I vaguely remember. I've since lost my copy of it. But it was set in, I want to say, the 1890s. And it was a version of Earth where you had some fantasy creatures that existed and you could mingle with characters like Van Helsing, the Ripper, and Dorian Gray. But the Red Death was actually a central force in it. And it was more or less described as an energy that manipulated the world and mutated some people and created monsters and was sort of the main theme for the heroes to go up against in the adventures. It was pretty cool. Hmm. Interesting. That might be fun to kind of mod and throw into DCC as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I remember the original Ravenloft module. I never got the campaign setting, though. So well, that's look at there. You guys got schooled by Dave tonight. <laughs> <laughs> now do it every week and I'll be impressed. <laughs> now, the other thing I was thinking of for the Red Death would be to use the Red Death itself, the plague, as sort of a campaign event to oh, yeah. preface oh, an adventure yeah. with it. To have something going on during your campaign that this plague is spreading across the countryside and it adds that little bit of tension when the party goes into town to buy supplies and someone drops dead in the street of the plague. Ooh. Gina, you could also use the Red Death as one of the influences on various creatures. One of the things I remembered when I first read through the DCC rulebook, Joseph Goodman told us to take monsters and make them our own and make them different, you know, and unique. And the Red Death could actually intermingle with these creatures and make them even more spooky or grotesque from being affected by the plague. It almost mutated, yeah. yeah he's, cl he's clearly a patron fodder. <laughs> oh, definitely. Either a patron or a deity. Right, right. Jen, what about you? I picked this thing apart, and I have references to so many different adventures and modules that have been put out by Goodman and third party. And to just list them all off because there's, oh, this aspect really reminded me of this thing here, seems a little trite. So I'm going to stick with Bride of the Black Mance as the one that really ties into it for me with this yeah. one. Because they're all locked away keeping the outside world out 
and there's a lot that plays in with the, you know, everything being in stasis while life happens and death happens outside. And there's that clock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that clock that keeps everything in line. Well, and uh, to throw things back at our guest, I think mm. that with just a touch of reskinning for the opening scene of They Sir Brandle and Red, it would really fit. Well, I, I don't think it would be too much spoilers to say that Brandy opens with a wedding scene, and, and any sort of ceremonial event could play in there. Yeah, I agree. Worst reception ever. <laughs> <laughs> Red Death could certainly be just waltzing through between the rows. Oh, yeah. Or or even uh, find a little something in common with an officiating priest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed this story, and like I said, there are so many pieces of, oh, well, there's this gate here, there's this clock here, there's this part of them welding themselves inside, which, God, it, it almost goes back to The Last Castle, which we did for our last show. Yeah. The other thing that we could do with the colors, I don't know if this shows me to be, like, the complete noob, but when I first heard about the rooms with the colors, without actually getting that visual... I was thrown to the different types of breath weapons for dragons. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or maybe I'm just dragon-centric. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to... I think the thing you'd have to also try to bring some... The mixing of colors to create, like, some sort of puzzle, right? This is also a good puzzle fodder. Oh, uh, having yeah. to collect something from the yellow room and the blue room to create a green key, something like that. that that's Ooh. something easy you could do with the players as well. Or get an item to work in one of these rooms, but you're not sure which one. And if you try it in one room, it goes horribly wrong. Yeah, that... <laughs> horribly wrong is always lots of fun. <laughs> or, or even the effect of filtering things. Certain objects might be invisible because of the color of the object versus the room you're in, right? Sort of like, they're, they're like contest cards. I, I think I've seen them at car dealerships where you've got the little card, you can't read it until you hold it behind the red filter and then you could read it. Oh, yeah. You can exactly. play with color that way. Exactly. So yeah, a lot of puzzle hmm. possibilities with colors. So is it too soon to kick to our second story? I think it's the perfect time to kick to our second story. The the first thing I had to do was figure out um, how do you pronounce Amontillado. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, Stephen. I appreciate <laughs> that. Well, and the online dictionary sites do not agree. They no. say some say Amontillado, some say Amontillado, but. Vincent Price, Christopher Lee, and Basil Rathbone all agree Amontillado. Amontillado. Here in the South, we say Amontillado. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a perfect time for some cheer wine, man. <laughs> the story revolves around two men, Montresor and Fortunato. And Fortunato is not really Montresor's friend or vice versa. Fortunato has been casting aspersions on the family honor of Montresor to the point where Montresor feels that he must avenge himself and must avenge his family's honor. So during a carnival-type event, he comes across Fortunato dressed as a fool, capering in bells and heavily in drink, and he invites him back to the Montresor Manor because he needs help confirming that the cask of wine that he just purchased is truly Amontillado, and a very big deal is made about the quality of Amontillado as a wine, and Fortunato believing himself to be the only person expert enough to be able to make the determination whether or not his friend has been taken advantage of. And the story really does revolve quite a bit around Fortunato's vanity 
humanity and how Montresor manipulates him. There's a lot of reverse psychology going on in the story as they enter the catacombs beneath the Montresor Manor. And there's bones and there's wine and they drink the wine as they go further and Montresor keeps telling Fortunato, well, I can have someone else make the determination. Surely you are cold and we should turn back. No, no, I don't wish to turn back. Well, the nighters on the wall are certainly going to make you cough and make you ill. Surely we should turn back. No, no, we must not turn back. I must taste of the Amontillado. And so Montresor continues plying Fortunato with more and more wine until they reach the end of the catacombs. And there's a small three-foot-deep alcove, at the back of which Montresor tells Fortunato may be found the cask of Amontillado. And Fortunato steps in, and Montresor manacles him to the wall, so subtly that Fortunato, in his adult state, doesn't even realize it at first. And then, brick by brick, Montresor walls Fortunato up. And... There's so much dialogue going back and forth that shows that even to the end, Fortunato is not really certain what is happening. And it is such a classic piece of Poe. And he was never caught. And he was never caught, right, because he talks about, oh, he's been down there 50 years. Oh, at least he's not got caught in 50 years. Right. (laughs) Yeah, the story takes place like 50 years exactly. It's like the 50th anniversary that night. Ah, okay. And Fortunata's body still hangs where it was left. As a matter of fact, the story concludes with the Latin phrasing, in passe requisat, may he rest in peace. It's just this delightful thing as, as he's walling him in and he's, he's crawling, you know, for the love of God. And he's just replying, yes, for the love of God. And he just keeps breaking him in bit by bit. It's this feeling of inevitability. Once it starts, there's just no stopping it. It just keeps going. No matter what he says, it just continues. And he keeps trying to say, Fortunato, aren't you cold? Shouldn't we go back? Reverse Are, psychology at its you, best. <laughs> you, you weren't feeling well. Uh, but we should we should go back. And even as he's chained, did you want to go back? Well, I, I, yes, yes, let us go. Oh, oh, very well then, I'm going. And he starts right. bringing him in. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. And for a short story, oh, there, there's so much that comes to mind for this one. And and it is. It's a very short story. It's a quick read, but it's so, again, Poe is so evocative. It's so filled with imagery and darkness as they go through the catacombs and they pass the bones. And he describes the hole in the wall where the bones have been moved aside. And then as he conceals it behind bones again. And it immediately made me think, in any adventure where you've got catacombs, you could have a portion where a wall begins to break away and there's the chained undead thing that is slowly tearing itself free. The hand that is chained to the wall ripping clear so the stub comes out at the party and it just comes slavering at them out of the darkness. It's a great Halloween. Yeah, it's a great (laughs) drop in an encounter in virtually anything. Very true. The wine could easily be altered and, and dropped in somewhere. They actually refer to not just the Amontillado, but a different type of wine in addition to the sherry. Yeah, there's a Medoc, Medoc, and then uh, there's another one that they drink as they keep going through. Yeah, this this so actually... They keep getting plastered as they go down. <laughs> yeah, I learned a valuable lesson. Never let a friend get you drunk that you've upset and take you down into his wine cellar. Good life lesson to learn. Yeah. (laughs) 
But this one actually it really threw me back to uh, Stephen's adventure, uh, Brandlin Red. I don't know why mm-hmm. this one really kind of rung a bell with that adventure. Let's Definitely. face it, it's it's a natural pairing, a cask of Amontillado and a bottle of Brandlin oh, Red. <laughs> see what you did there. <laughs> but what do we say about spoilers on... on... <laughs> You know, we try not to spoil adventures. We figure, you know, especially a story that's over 100 years old, if you haven't read it, you haven't read it. Yeah. The module's just out. People need to buy it and read it. We can still highlight some of the similarities here. For instance, the warring families. Yeah. The revenge taken on somebody, oh, let's just say in the wine industry. <laughs> If I'm not mistaken, the spilled wine comes into play more than once. The mausoleum, the fact that the the family crypt for Montresor was underneath his own castle, that really kind of hit a chord with that one. You know, I do love the fact that in the story, you have this nice abandoned place. And just beyond directly tying things into Brandlin Red, which we certainly can do, there's, again, so many prop ideas that can be dropped into this one, sound oh, effects yeah. that can be dropped in. Such as? Uh, well, how about, you know, kind of a catacomb soundtrack, dripping water, echoing footfalls. Oh, yeah. You know, there's so many atmospheric things out there where you can find the soundscape of caves and things like that that would work really, really well. You need a muffled sound of chains against the stone wall. Or oh. jester bells, because that's the last thing he hears as he bricks him up. As he checks on him, all he hears is the jester's bells ringing. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting that, that we talk about the jester because, um, well, so I know David Beatty's got Carnival of the Damned um, coming out, <laughs> and I've been fortunate enough to read a, an advanced copy. But in my mind, this encounter could have fit well as one of the setups for that. You know, you have the jester character, you have the carnival, you've got the costumes that people are wearing. So, oh, um, yeah, this could be part of the jester's past Yeah, that we delve oh, yeah. into. It would very easily fit in with that. Yeah. And, nice. And, the luring of the of the guy, right? So in, in game terms, I think the tricky way to do that would be how would you get the PCs lured by someone like that? I mean, I think the PC should be the victim in this case. And a wicked jester makes hmm. the best villain, in my opinion, so... <laughs> Yeah, well, and maybe crazy. that's why he's so wicked, you know, after being liquored up and bricked up for 50 years. <laughs> well, the children were the ones coming to the carnival, right? What happened to their parents? Oh, oh yeah. Now, these are great ideas. Maybe yeah. I need to rewrite. <laughs> Sequel <laughs> modules, add-ons. Prequels, yeah. Um, I have here in my notes, was it at some point in the adventure, or in the story of the adventure, <laughs> at some point in the story... <laughs> Um, that fitting, yes. Right. Fortunato asks the narrator if he's a mason. Does he know the secret handshake and whatnot? And the narrator pulls out his trowel. And they're like, oh, of course, and they go on. I think one of the things that I, I haven't seen done a lot of in adventures is using the idea of guilds and thieves guilds and how they influence gameplay. But, right. but that struck me as, as something whereas knowing secret signs of certain guilds and it just seemed like there was something you could have played with there for a thief character um, well for any character i mean that's a great way to tie in those zero level professions those pre-character class backgrounds it's a it is a great way to tie it in i'm ashamed i've never thought of it and you know 
Stephen, just I mean, without any kind of a big spoiler, one of the things I loved about the Brandon Adventure is your use of starting party occupations. Well, thank you. I actually, that's one of my, I don't want to divert too much of that, but starting occupations are a theme through all the adventures I write. I, I have so much fun with that. I try to do bonuses, even in the higher level modules, like, well, if you used to be a forester or a sheep, <laughs> you will get an advantage on that. I, I love that concept of DCC. Very prevalent during Attack of the Frogs as well. I really like the intro for the fact that you're hammering home all of the occupations and the family ties as well as the fact that you're at a wedding you don't have weapons on you right now (laughs) that's just rude (laughs) so they're left to do what they will at the first sign of trouble oh that opening scene was so much fun to play I'm so sorry that I broke the end of that scene when we playtested it but (laughs) but I had so much fun with that opening scene there was so much tension because you're at a wedding you don't expect everything to suddenly go horrifically wrong and it does it's it's a powerfully written scene it plays out very well there's a lot of real tension a lot of times you can play an adventure and you're like oh well okay there's a fight and we move on there's a fight we move on and the opening scene to this adventure as you're really wondering oh my god am i going to even live through this scene Yep. That real tension adds a lot to an adventure. The feeling there's consequences. If you screw up, there's consequences. Yeah, I, so I, I think I'll, I'll pause here for, for your listeners and just <laughs> give some spoilers out. So if you, if you really don't want to know. So so they serve Randall in red. It opens, as, as we just talked about, it opens with a wedding scene. The, the players are zero-level characters at a wedding between two prominent families in a small town. And things go horribly wrong almost immediately. There's a big fight. And as part of that, the players are given background families. And so instead of doing rumors, like we typically have rumors, true, false rumors, what I did is family stories that have done through the ages. So I think there's four or five families and then you give out cards to the characters and so they will know a little bit about rumors based on their upbringing. So that's kind of the setup and then from there you start to investigate <laughs> what the hell just happened. But the intro scene, you know, to actually the inspiration for the intro scene was actually the movie Willow. Oh, oh wow. yeah. If you remember the movie Willow and the dogs come and attack and I thought, wouldn't that be interesting? I mean, like right at the bat, you're sitting there, you don't have any weapons and bad things start happening. And then, again, with my enjoyment of playing with background occupation and luck as well, so you might have weapons or something with you for luck. So I tried to bring some of that into it. That was the uh, inspiration for that scene. And to your point, Bob, that was one of the things when I playtested it at Game Castle. One of the guys, Maxwell Spawn, in our in our group, he's like, he's like, oh, oh, we're going to do this now. He was totally convinced. <laughs> well, and make no mistake, if things go horribly wrong, it could be. It is not... It's not a harmless encounter. There's real tension to it. It's certainly a survivable encounter, but you've got to be smart about it. If you play real fast and loose and and take too many risks, things could go very poorly for your zero-level character. It is a funnel. (laughs) I've seen some zero-level guys, and their strategy as part of playtesting is... I. This is the part where I cower in fear and try to hide under a pew, and they and they just hope that the other things, you know, the bad things yeah, will happen to other people before that. it happens to them. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> if you're looking for a strategy, you found one. Um, can I just say though, after running this a couple of times, I think Father Geralt is possibly the most tragic figure in in this adventure. I mean, <laughs> you know what's going on with all of your NPCs and and whatnot, but this guy, everything goes to hell right at the beginning during this marriage that was supposed to be sacrosanct and he ends up having to leave the scene because his god is displeased with him so he must go bathe in a barrel of hair 
<laughs> and yeah, deity disapproval. Yeah. It, it's really that's right inspiring, and I love playing the broken characters. Yeah, you know, the the ones that might not have the best stats. Mm -hmm. And this guy, I, I kind of want Father Geralt to be my next PC. <laughs> that was a mechanic in-joke, so to speak. I don't know how else to describe it. And the other one, I don't know if it actually made the final cut, because I had to cut that scene yeah. quite a bit, you know, to hit the word count. But there's another in-joke where everybody thinks one of the characters is dead, and then they rolled her over, and she's <laughs> miraculously alive. So that was oh, my golden so body in-joke. <laughs> so I'm seeing a really good prop here, Jim. If we could get a barrel and full of, full of wigs. <laughs> And set it you next know, to a barrel full of wine. We, we, we could be a little nicer and just put different vessels of wines out for the party to partake of. and Or, you know, soda for, for those that don't drink. And just keep note of which bottles people reach for to refill their glass. Yeah. I was even thinking, I think that there online you can find uh, templates to print off your own wine labels. Yes, oh, nice. Can. So you, you could make your own bottle of Brandolin oh, Red. I think yeah. that would be really cool. Huh. Yeah, you, could, you could have a bottle of Brandolin Red and you could have other wines. And, and to make sure that the Brandolin Red really sticks out as fine wine, for everything else it should just be like Grape Night Train. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, this one on top of... We just playtested an adventure, our, our local group did, uh, by Clint Bohati. And I'm not sure if the name is public knowledge yet, so I'll, I'll keep mom on that for Boo. for that moment. Drinking the wine <laughs> that's offered in there uh, can can do some very interesting things to you and your surroundings. There's also the one who watches from below. Oh yeah, where if the jars of mm -hmm. something, they, spoilers, kept in pink fluid, and of course you always get those people. Oh, I drink it. And it's actually a very unexpected result. Yeah, it's so not what you expected the result to be. And so I would just like to put bottles of each of these on the table and see what the players go for. Not so much the characters, well, but the players. <laughs> and mentioning that module, there's the sequence early in where there's the, the other pilgrims that have that have come to that area where things are starting, and it would be so easy. It's already kind of a creepy scene, and you could have them partially walled in as well, which adds to that oh, feeling yeah. of despair. Yeah, so it's Carnival. Yeah. Good idea. Right. Hey, Stephen, is it safe to call Brandolin the ultimate in the Red Weddings? Uh, yeah. uh certainly in the one that I've written. I don't know if... <laughs> I definitely would say it's the creme de la creme of all of the adventures I've read, which there haven't been a lot where there have been weddings in them, but you still, you did a good job on that one. Yes. Thank you. Thanks. Well, it was also very fun to play because it's not, it doesn't play out just like a straight dungeon crawl. I mean, it can, but, you know, I'm a huge Call of Cthulhu fan, and you can certainly take a more investigative route, and you can be more thoughtful and more cerebral as you go about it. Granted, during playtest, we kind of didn't but you can they served brandolin red is campaign fuel yeah definitely i could easily see characters getting up at least to well definitely to level one but getting through a full two sessions especially if you allow them to poke at the npcs a little there's a lot of work that went into that and it's beautiful and even at the end, you're given some options if you want to continue this as a campaign. The author, oh wait, he's here. Really did a good, <laughs> really did a good job with that. 
Well, and that's, I think that's important for an adventure, that it doesn't feel wholly self-contained, that there's enough options that you can drop it in to an existing game or you can expand on it. I think that Brandlin Red, much like Chained Coffin or Purple Planet, is a great starting point, and you can run an entire campaign just set in that area because even though it's a single module, there's enough background and flavor to it that any good judge can just run with it and expound on it and take what's there and turn it into something really, really fantastic for a long time. Yeah, my, my own home group that I play over here, our campaign started with Hyrot, Hyrot, whatever. I mean, that's still... I'm still using elements from Ooh. Doom of the Savage King. Oh, that's cool. And that's a really nicely day. laid out city and everything, too. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> oh, I've got Please, everything Steven, I need right don't here. kill me, but Bob just gave me a really great idea. I could run Brandolin okay. set in the, uh, the Shutter Mountains, yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Well, if you think about it, you could even, with a slight alteration for the Shutter Mountains, you know... As opposed to Brandlin Red, it could just be Brandlin Shine. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the distillery up in the hills with, right. a, with the uh, big the, copper the exploded pots stills. all sitting in disarray. And yeah. <sighs> and yeah. While reskinning is, is such an important part of DCC yeah, these days, you can take and reskin anything. And yeah, you could, you could drop this into the Shutter Mountains easily. So. Maybe the statue we could replace with an effigy of the Red Death? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I really think that you, know, you could, again, you could reskin the opening wedding and, and change the combat a little bit to be the effect of the Red Death. Or you could finish the entire adventure, get together for a big celebratory gala that everything's been resolved, and then Ooh, yeah. kick to the Red Death. Well, yeah. Because in a campaign, it's there should right, never be downtime right. where you get to relax. <laughs> well, there are there are wine catacombs in the adventure, so you could easily put a uh, a, a brick wall in there with somebody exactly. behind it. Some, and, and and the other thing I didn't talk about it to get back to the the cask here for a moment. Um, the uh, the poisonous effects of the walls. I think that is something that you know. I would have explored more if I wanted to throw this into, if I wanted to adapt Brandolin to cask. Oh. That's, that's one of the other elements. I would have put the cave walls with that stuff that was obviously making them cough. And it had some sort of poison. Huh. That we're doing. Okay, maybe we just blended all three. <laughs> that's right. They served Amontillado death. <laughs> well, we hope you've heard something in this show that inspires you. We hope you make the most of your Halloween. And if you'd like to chime in or have a suggestion for a future topic, feel free to email us at thehub at sanctum.media. We'll also take any information you want to throw us regarding your convention or road crew games coming up. Just give us about two weeks' notice. And with that, I think we're out. How about you, David? Yep, take care, folks. Have a good, safe Halloween, and thank you, Stephen, for joining us on the show. Uh, thank you, guys. Thanks for for inviting me on. This is uh, it's been a lot of fun, and um, it, re it reminds me of my college days where you got to talk about <laughs> stories after reading. So this was uh, uh, I, I like this podcast a lot. You're podcast with kind. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. All right, Bob. Have a dark, dark Halloween. Ooh. And I can't compete with that. Good night.
Be safe, folks. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us again in two weeks' time when we unsheath the ebony blade of Michael Moorcox, Elric of Melnibony. The Sanctum Secorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2015.